0: My name is uh, Marcus Randolph, and I'm one of the uh, uh, kind of pastors here, Um, volunteer from time to time. And um, yeah, so I'm giving the message today. I'd like to say thank you guys for being here because you could really be any other place on a nice Sunday afternoon in the summer, but you chose to be here, which probably means that you have a greater fidelity to your religious community than I have for mine. And I'm just... (laughs) Just just a little bit. So how's your summer going so far? For those of you who work in education, I need to say something to you, especially if you work in the state of education in California. You did it. You navigated something that you probably never thought would happen. The total interruption as formal schooling as those of you who know it. For those of you who made it through the school year, you dealt with children who collectively experienced a trauma that neither you or I could, could fathom. And after that, uh, and then, after a year and a half, you returned to school. And in that returning to school, well, you made it. You really didn't know that. For those of you who made it through the school year and dealt with children who collectively experienced that interruption that none of us have ever experienced, after that initial excitement, of the school, you began to realize that it's gonna be a bumpy ride. For those of you who who comforted those little students who was their first day of school, you made it. To those little ones who were used to being around those parents and their older siblings all the time, it must have been so scary for them to walk into that big, huge stone building for the first time, only to be greeted by adults wearing masks and who ushered them away from their parents and their older siblings. And to you, the educator who took the time out of their morning to comfort that kid who was determined to cry, scream, and yell every day and have that emotional breakdown, you got through the school year. You did it. Thank you to the paraeducators and the SPED teachers who spend every day loving and educating the children who live in a world, a very different world, away from normal children. And to the elementary staff who did the hard work of developing the social emotional capital to help cover the maturity and wide learning gaps, you did it. And to you middle school teachers who had to deal with t- uh, students who probably left off of school in elementary and then came back as really, really, really big fifth graders, you made it. God heard your prayers. And to you parents, many of you who, if to many of you whom, if you're just honest, you was just tired of your kids being at the house. <laughs> just, just be honest, you was just get out. Just, you love them, but you just like you, you, you had to get out. You made it too. And you guys deserve a lot of credit because for almost a year and a half, you went from parent to educator, to IT personnel, to principal, to behavior specialist, all while working another full-time job. You made it, and we have made it through another school uh, year. Last week, Pastor Omer talked about some of the I Am statements, as we talked about, like, making it through. Last week, Pastor Omer talked about some of the I Am statements in his teachings in the Bread of Life. And, um, yeah, and it's going to be really hard to follow that particular teaching because you all know that Pastor Omer brings it every single time. This week, we're going to go into a little bit about uh, John 660, in which um, Jesus, uh, in which uh, the disciples declared that a particular teaching is hard. So what we'll first do is talk about some of the I Am statements and how they came to their particular conclusion. Jesus said to them, Verily I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood remains in me, and I in him because of the Father, so that no one who feeds on him will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this will live forever. He said this while teaching in Capernaum, aware of that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascended to where he lives? The spirit gives life and the flesh lives for nothing. The words I have said to you are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who will betray him. He went on to say that this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. I'm going to back up just a little bit because I didn't particularly catch this uh, teaching. But on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? What is it about Jesus' teaching that is hard? Could it be that Jesus, while teaching in the synagogue, at Capernaum, and that he, being a very observant rabbi, teaching a very observant Jewish audience, stated that he was the bread of life. And to the further point, he says literally that my flesh and drink my blood, which would have been very offensive to an audience that understood the Torah. Torah. And perhaps their understanding of this section of Torah would have popped in their minds in Leviticus, where it says, this is why of Because of the life of every creature, it's blood. That is why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature. Because the life of every creature is in its blood. And anyone who eats of it will be cut off. And here you have this rabbi who's done these miracles. And everybody's kind of an awe or a buzz about him. And he's from your own hometown. And you have this idea of what a Messiah is like in your head. And he's saying that he is the bread of life. Literally eat my flesh, drink of my blood and that could have been quite offensive. Could it have been the fact that because it was a synagogue that was really familiar with Jesus? I mean these people knew his family, his brothers and his sisters and his mother. They could have known his earthly father and the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and now he's proclaiming deity? What is it about Jesus' particular teaching that is difficult for this particular audience. Is it that he's using a, a rabbinic device that would lead one to either rejecting him or accepting him? Interestingly enough, that audience would have been used to, like, a rabbi teaching this way and using these teaching techniques to stress this point which seems to be one of the overall arching themes of the way the gospel of John is written. There seems to be such an emphasis on the I am statements and Jesus claiming who he is. And this is where we see kind of this really good distinction or a marked distinction between the gospel of John and all of the other gospels. Where we seem to be a focus on this teaching. There's kind of a light hinting at it depending on how you read the synoptic gospels. But here it is, John. Right in your face, ninety plus years after the ascension of Jesus, depending on like our timeline, and he's writing it to this audience, saying, "Hey, remember who Jesus is. What is it about Jesus' teachings that hard? Is it because when we literally say uh, the term like this is a hard teaching, it's translated who is able to hear it, uh, who can accept it? It could be translated directly." Who can hear it with appreciation? Jesus furthers the teaching even more to those in the room. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? That if you, oh, this is where it was. Does this offend you? That if, what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? That the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who will betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless the Father has enabled them. And we see later on in the text that many in that particular room that day chose to walk away. And yet Jesus, who had been walking around for about three years at this point, turns to his 12 and he says, hey, are you guys leaving too? Only to get a strong affirmative answer from Peter, like, we're not going anywhere. But Jesus even knew that one of them would betray him. Depending on your kind of school of thought, you have these particular um, scholars that know where Judas Iscariot was from, and like many, he had a mind, uh, he had a kind of in his mind what many people thought that the Messiah was like, because I can imagine, it must have been really challenging and hard to be a people in your land, and there's a, another people, person's there, and walking around, and they're occupying this land that, from what you've grown up with, was supposed to be rightfully yours. And then you have this Iscariot sect, who was really, really kind of They didn't necessarily trust those who worked directly with the Roman government, the government. And if depending on uh, uh, what your school of thought is or what scholars you look to, some people even thought that uh, this came out a couple of years ago where Judas thought he might have been a good doing a good thing by betraying Jesus, trying to spark some type of revolution because he had in his mind what the Messiah was supposed to be like, like many others. Because when you're living in a situation where you are occupied in the land and you don't have full citizenship, that could make you feel some type of way. What is it about Jesus' teachings that is hard? Could it be that some of his very own first public statements rock the foundations of this thing that we call human certainty? What is it about our need to be right that, when confronted, makes a listener kind of feel some type of way? What is it about the fact that, again, you're walking around and you're occupied and you see these people who have? Uh, who are, there few of them, and they have rights that you don't have, and you've been hearing about maybe scriptures in Isaiah, and you've read like Jeremiah, and you've read these things that are pointing to this Messiah, and yet Jesus comes along, and you're a little confused because he says some things, and you're like, yeah, I kind of feel it, and he's doing these miracles. There's there's this buzz around his teachings, and, and you're all in. You're excited, and then he says things like, hey, first public teaching. Hey, guys. Hey, hey! check this out. You know what? Love your enemy, which is, you know, that well, must not have felt pretty good. You know, like love your enemy. Like those people were trying to harm me. He begins to speak and say that people who are normally blessed, well, it challenges us. It says that people who are blessed are those who mourn, the merciful and peacemakers, the virtues that can sometimes go against our human nature. It may feel like these virtues lived out in the world are kind of strange, especially given evidence of things that are around us can be so different. Then in, only the, then in the genius that only can be attributed to Jesus, he elevates the game. He tells the listener it's, it's not just good enough to not kill, but to hold hatred in one's heart against somebody is just as good as murder. That's a tough teaching. He says to the listener, it's not just good enough for, for the, the man to stay, for, uh, to stay like, true to his marriage. He almost implies that if you look at somebody it, with an un, like, a, non, a, a desire in your heart, and then you would get married to another person for the sole purpose, like leave your spouse for the sole purpose of just getting married to somebody else, well, you've also committed adultery. And he ups to Annie again more and more. And then he begins to say, love your enemy, pray for those who would do harm in you, that you're showing, uh, that you, showing your children that you, of your Father in heaven, from the very beginning, Jesus gets at the idea of our certainty. And that's kind of where we find ourselves sometimes as, as believers. That's kind of where we find ourselves, this idea that if we're certain and we know, and just like some of Jesus' teaching uh, techniques, it can be hard because, well, if we're honest, we kind got to have a certain human need for certainty. John's writing in particular, as well as the other counsel of Jesus, let us know that what people were expecting out of Messiah and who the Messiah actually was, well, was totally different. Because I'm pretty sure, like stated earlier, if you're growing up, hearing of the teachings of the Messiah— and taking away uh, from them that there is possibly this day coming around where there's going to be the overthrow. Then that guy who you're familiar with, who you grew up with, whose brothers and sisters you know, comes to the synagogue one day and says, Hey, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, and continually points to him. And at that particular point, we hear, oh, this is kind of tough. That certainty of what we thought or who we thought the Messiah to be, well, that goes out of the window. Um, there was an article a couple of years, I uh, believe, in September of 2021 uh, 20, uh, in Psychology Day, and it talked about the epidemic of certainty. And it says, certainty is an emotional state, not an intellectual one. To create a feeling of certainty, the brain must filter out more information than it processes, which, of course, increases its already high error rate during emotional arousal. In other words, the more certain we feel, the more likely we're oversimplifying, if not we're downright wrong. And I don't know how many times we've held on to this idea of, of being certain of, of knowing exactly kind of what we want and how we want it. Um, you, 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 maybe you get married. I don't know if anybody has a, a, a significant other in the room. And, and if you've ever been single before, like I used to hear this all the time until I got married and then I totally understood what they were saying. It's not that being single is bad. In fact, they want to encourage you to stay single. It's just that you get married and there's another person involved. Who is another whole person that like pushes back against you, that doesn't know your mind. Like, I wish I just honestly wish that they could just read my mind and know what you're saying. Who who sees your everyday. And then if you have little children in the mix who have their own little personalities, and it's amazing observing you people who are parents, how you can have like five different children. And you have five different personalities that came from the same pr- people. And they will just be all over the place. And you got the calm one in all of them. And they're all a reflection of you. Not, not that it's your fault that they're like. Well, it is kind of your fault that they're like that, just be honest. Like. Not that they're your fault, but, you know, you can see kind of you in each and every one of them. And is that God's way of saying, ha-ha, gotcha? Because you knew how it was going to be just like you knew how it was going to be when you get married, because you know how we romanticize culture in this. Like that idea of they knew how the Messiah was going to be. He was going to come in and, and destroy the Roman government, and then we would be kind of have our day, and they, that would be our role. But why was it Jesus' teachings were so hard? The, uh, the article would later go on to state that the more certain many people feel, The more validation they seem to require, validation seems necessary when we're insecure about our beliefs, opinions, and prejudices. Self-doubt is typically covered up with anger, and attempts to devalue others. And so that uncertainty. Now we're we're looking at people around us, and I can imagine some of those disciples who were following Jesus were like, "Hey, uh, this is cool. it's, it's, It's enough. He's tripping." Those other guys are tripping, and they begin to walk away. And I don't know how many times in this walk of faith that I've oftentimes felt like I, I just, I just can't do it. Have you ever like read the Bible, gone to church, um, try to put into practice what you, 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 you know, maybe love your enemy, maybe, maybe it's that that coworker that maybe is a workplace bully, maybe it's the uh, the, the neighbor just you got something going on with that 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 person in your your student group or whatever it is and there's something and you go okay good old-fashioned what would jesus have me do and then you try and you try and you try to be patient and you try again maybe it's if you're an educator for whatever reason or another god for you educators who are in the room every day Sometimes you have that one student. You don't know why you get that one student, but you know that one student I'm talking about. They just, they require uh, what they call a little extra grace because I just have to admit, I have some friends who are educators. And because I'm a mental health worker, they come and vent to me. I'm not saying that it is any children's in here fault, but you will be surprised how many educators, if they didn't have the patience, that God gave them patience for would feel like doing things to children, that they should do to adults, you know maybe like throwing something at them, you know, saying words to them that um, only adults should understand. Um, I'm pretty sure none of you who have ever worked with children or have had experiences with human beings have ever felt like that. but uh, it's, just, it's just like that. And they're like, "I try. I try, Mr. Randolph, to love these kids. I really do. I try to love that one kid in particular. We take him outside. We, we, we talk to him. We, we do the, I, every day, it's the same thing over and over again. And the kid just seems to reject me and reject everyone around him. And then I don't want to blame their parents. And they, they, they really try hard not to blame the parents. They go like, we know it's hard, it's tough. But again... They try, and it seems like the world around them, no one's giving them the support. And then if you have that Christian teacher, I try to love them, it's a little difficult. But why is this teaching hard? Maybe because it's this. Every week we tend to say Matthew 12, hear oh, uh, Jesus' answer to a question of what's the important, most important command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And um, then we followed up with the second most important command, love your neighbor as yourself. And I really believe that most of us don't have a problem with the first command. I think the idea of loving a God who first loved us is awesome. The idea of 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 a God who comes down from heaven, wraps Himself up in flesh, and 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 pays us, uh, the sin price and makes atonement for us is great. It's that second part that I'm, I'm I don't know about you, but I got a, I got a hard time with the second one because the second one involves people, and and we have these really great commands. These these treat other people how we want to be treated. But again, that people and the problem is the tension because loving God seems great up here. But then, like, if loving people is evidence of loving God, there's some tension, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. And when Jesus came, he reiterates this over and over again. And then for those of us who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, according to the writer of John, to all the claims that he makes, we see this example of Jesus holding his humanity and his deity all at the same time. And then he teaches, and it becomes tough. But I'm a little convinced that it was not meant to be that easy, which is why loving God and loving people is so hard, because it requires us to do both. It's not an option. It's, an either, it's not an either-or con- concept. And this can be a very simple but hard teaching, because God seems to understand It's the human beings who think and act differently than maybe we want them to act, who may not show appreciation when expected, who can do things to other image carriers and act out harms and their hurts. And what's worse is they they can do this in the name of a loving God to whom they are certain who they're claiming to be acting on behalf. Which it's why, interestingly enough to me, the comment section this week blew up. I don't know if you guys know what the comment section is but like maybe you've like read something on Twitter and then you like follow the, com- I don't know, like that's a little guilty pleasure of mine. There's all these feedback comments that I'm like, yay, yay, cool, and then the comment section blows up and you find that one comment that's like inflammatory and if you follow like Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever it is, Reddit, whatever it is, LinkedIn, like, you go to that one. I don't know why, just that one. And you want to see the challenge in the discourse. And boy, did it blow up this week. Oh, man, did it. And everybody was right. For whatever reason or another, we live in an, uh, uh, a culture that we, well, we're all... I just feel that Twitter, Instagram, and social media has made us all experts on a bunch of things that we may not necessarily know all the full details to. And so... This week, as a Christian, brought me a lot of tension. If you've been in the land of evangelical Christianity long enough, then you might too feel some tensions this week about the recent rulings to reverse the federal 1973 decisions of Roe v. Wade. I can't tell you exactly when I fundamentally changed, but the shift was significant the more and more I worked in vocational ministry and the more and more I worked as a youth youth pastor. See, the hard part about this issue is is like when you first come to Jesus in like an American context, if you're not aware or if you grow up in evangelicalism and you haven't deconstructed yet, there are a couple things you believe that get you closer to heaven. One, being in a uh, um, heterosexual marriage and having kids. Two, like... You, for whatever reason or another, you have to vote a particular way. And if you don't vote this particular way, and then you're not not in a heterosexual marriage, and you have a bunch of kids, and then for whatever reason or another, really traceable, as we brought Philip Vollmer into like the late 1970s, the other hot topic issue was abortion. And through the years, for whatever reason or another, this has become like the political litmus test. Like it's, and it's almost in some circles replaced actual like theology. The idea that maybe it's just not good enough to believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, died for your sins, rose up, you walk in that, believe in faith. Now you have to believe in the X, Y, or Z, but in particular, you have to have a particular stance on abortion. And I remember being like, really all in when I first got in there because I was ignorant. I don't know about you, but like, if you ever like, like were fired up for Jesus in the fundamental phase and you were like, whatever the party line is, go, 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 go. Oh, boy, was I there. And I apologize for all of my ignorance because I said dumb stuff. I actually was about to cuss just now, but I think we're being recorded. <laughs> I just have to. I said dumb stuff. D- really, really dumb things. And the hard part about this really complex issue is, is that the main drivers of the political discourse are people at the extremes of both ends. You have one extreme that tends to uh, have the arguments of pro-life tend to come off as more pro-baby at all costs. And with that, they seem to only care about certain lives. They They tend to neglect the fact that Black women in particular, women of color, are five times more likely to have an abortion as their white counterpart or three times as likely to die. So while advocating for the birth, uh, while advocating for, like, the birth, there seem to be a couple of inconsistencies with the pro-life argument. Like, I love the fact that we are pro-life, that we want life to come into the room, but it seems to me a little incomplete if we don't advocate for like really quality prenatal health care for everyone or health care in general quality maternity and paternity leave and if you've been around political talk long enough there's a shaming that seems to come with women who do have children i don't know about you but like If you are of a certain age, they used to shame you for being on welfare. Now, I'm a child of the 1980s. I am a small child, 1980s, who grew up in a crack era Compton. My mom grew depressed for a little bit when she divorced my dad, right? And so for a little bit, we were on welfare, only for like two years, public assistance. Everybody else around us was it. She was a single mom with three boys, came fresh off of divorce, needed the system kind of to get up on her feet. Well, if you were around long enough, there was like political talk that all single mothers should have these babies and not be on welfare. And as I got older, I was like, I don't know many young women who have the resources to raise children on their own. It seemed like public assistance, you know, in its various forms, seems practical. But I'd oftentimes be like, well, how do you want her to have the baby? And then like talk crazy about her when she had a baby and need a little bit of assistance. I just you know the inconsistencies and then there's the other side there's another extreme this kind of extreme where um, then there's a side where uh, that there's this argument over where life begins and it's just a clump of cells and it seems to be honestly a disingenuousness that there is another life involved that some women do experience trauma after they've made that decision to have an abortion that is just not an easy decision that there's actually like a little inconsistency even within our criminal laws. It's interesting that there are people who are like, yay, have an abortion anytime. And again, these are like the really, really extreme and But our criminal laws would acknowledge that if a woman was murdered, highly likely by an intimate, uh, intimate partner, if she was murdered by an intimate partner and she's pregnant, that the law would hold that murderer responsible for two lives. And yet, in the very, 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 very rare, like incredibly rare, like it doesn't happen as much as people proclaim it happens, situation where if a person were to have an abortion in like the late trimester, uh, late late third trimester, again, which is really rare and only tends to happen in rare circumstances for medical reasons, no such charges would apply. So again, we have this kind of inconsistency along both aisles, but there's complexities with it. And in all these situations, I have to be honest, it's not clear. Jesus doesn't have a a direct teaching on abortion. He didn't have a direct teaching on same-sex marriages, which is interesting enough because we're in this marriage, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was how a lot of the theology that we have, um, that has come up um, that stands directly in opposition to our gay brothers and sisters really popped up in the late 1960s because we don't see a large history of theology before that. And it seems to be a reaction to those people who kind of wanted to express their particular political rights. And all of a sudden they got wrapped up around this particular theological stance. And then with even then that, there's theological stances about how people express and live that out. And in these situations, we say the Bible is clear, yes, I get it, don't murder. But if you've ever had to look into the eyes of a young person who found themselves pregnant and didn't know what they were doing, who came from some rough circumstances, who's feeling the pressure from maybe their family or the father of a child, and they look dead at you and wonder, can God still love me with this? And I'm going to tell you a couple of anecdotes because I honestly believe that facts tell and stories sell. It really was my experience as a youth pastor in a large ministry that totally changed my whole perspective about it. And there were three stories that stick out in particular. We'll say that one young woman, her name was Beth. Beth's mother was on drugs. Beth's mother was in and out of the uh, uh, California penal system. Beth had a sister, and they ended up kind of being out on the streets. Somehow, God brought uh, Beth and her sister across my path, and at the time I met Beth, she had had an abortion, and her father had been down here. And me and another uh, minister of the gospel, another youth pastor, were like, hey, what's going on? She's talking to us, and We end up realizing that her father lived in a couple cities over. Hey, well, let's just go talk to your dad. And she's crying, and like all 16-year-olds, she said, I tried to get help. Where did you try to get help? On the internet. Oh, what did the internet teach you? They said I was a murderer, and God couldn't love me. And yet, we had to spend most of our time kind of re-correcting this message. And then, we get to Beth's house, and Beth's house was traditionally very Catholic, very strong in their beliefs. And my coworker, my um, coworker, but like she was with us, had shared her story about that medical de- decision and how God had kind of redeemed and, and t- uh, took that from her. And we're sitting there and Beth's crying in her living room, we're talking to her dad and only thing dad could say to her was you killed your baby. You killed your baby. It took a lot in me because I'm like, dude, she's not necessarily worried about that right now. She just wants to know, daddy, do you love me? Daddy, did I do the one thing that was so unforgivable? I know that you and mom aren't together no more and I know that mom's got all sorts of issues and in the jail, but dad, do you love me? Can can you be loved? And the only thing that had been ingrained in this man's thinking was that the worst thing in the world that anyone could do was have an abortion and how could his daughter have an abortion? And the only thing he kept saying to her over and over again was how could you kill your baby? What is wrong with you? And I remember such a shift with me in that moment that I knew that I I just couldn't hammer that home because again this child was 16 and all she wanted to know was Dad, do you still love me? And then we had a situation. We'll just say that the child's name was Aaron. And again, Aaron's mom was on drugs, um, methamphetamine, in fact, and had had Aaron, and well. Aaron had unfortunately, when uh, mom had custody, uh, been through some some abuse challenges, all sorts of abuse, been left in situations that they shouldn't have been, and unfortunately, custody was removed and given to um, grandparents. And grandparents, God bless them, fundamental people, tried as much as they they could, but you know they're they're hammering those things down, but they're you know there's just some disconnect, you know, when you when you get those uh, old school parents that, that they just don't know, they don't know, but. They, Great people, great people loved them, but you know, yeah, when you, when you, when you close to seventy and you inherit like a six year old, like again, God bless them, <laughs> you know, God bless them. But um, Aaron's mom, I got to talk to her in a couple of moments of clarity, and Aaron's mom knew what Aaron had gone through, and Aaron, kn- and she knew that Aaron, she she knew that she had messed up Aaron's life. But she also knew she was an addict. And she had gone on to have like subsequent abortions, like two, because she she admits to me, she goes, this is in a parking lot, over at a, uh, just in a parking lot. She's like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but I couldn't bring another child in the world and have them face what Aaron faced. And this woman thought that the most loving thing that she could do was have an abortion because she didn't want her children to go through what they went through. Now, again, I, I, my mind, again, is being rocked with this. Because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, whoa. And then I thought about Jesus. And, and I, I couldn't help but to think of, like, John uh, um, 8, like the woman, quote-unquote, caught in adultery. Or, or, or how Jesus would treat this. Because I was like, I, I don't know. There's, like, I'm, I'm a youth pastor, dude. I, I, I teach junior high people. And, and we, you know, we, we play video games and have small group. Like, there's no manual for this. <laughs> the party line is, I'm supposed to be like, no abortion at all. And yet this woman, trapped by addiction, thought that this was a loving act. Now, I know it better than that. I know that, that there were other options, but yet she knew that I was either going to kill him from smoking methamphetamine or I had to do something. And again, she looks at me and goes, Pastor, do you think God is cool with that? Like, I'm, again, I'm not regular pastor. I'm just junior high, like to play games with the kids, wrestle with you, you know, tell you that Jesus loves you. And I, I, I can honestly say that I didn't have an answer. Not so much as the, the God loving her part, but there is no kind of direct answer. And this is where I feel like Jesus' teachings are hard. Because amongst all these kind of ideal issues we have, where we place one thing on one side of, uh, we have this issue and there's one extreme and the other, there are real image bearers of Jesus who make these decisions. There are real people who strongly are seeking some type of love and affirmation and validation. And what are we supposed to do as image bearers? What are we supposed to do to love, to help the reputation of Jesus? I think the teachings of Jesus are hard or why, uh, who can appreciate this, are tough because There are real people who have real issues, and if we're honest with ourselves, we just don't have the answer. So all we can do is pray. Act in the best faith that you can, and trust that you are being the hands and feet of Jesus regardless of how you stand on that issue. And act in good faith, knowing that you have been the hands and feet of Jesus. They're real people with real issues. And it's not just the common section. It's not just the court decision. These are real image bearers of Jesus. That if you're very fortunate enough, God brings them into your life. And you get that I say the blessing of the gray. It's neither black, neither white, but the blessing of the gray where Jesus meets us right there. All right, now we're gonna move on to uh, communion. As Jesus said, uh, we're gonna eat of the flesh and the blood. And as we practice this sacred uh, activity. I just want you guys to, let's think that there are real human people who need a savior of their soul. So um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup of wine during Passover, said, drink this, my blood, do this in remembrance of me. He also took bread and broke it, and said, eat of the flesh, do this in remembrance of me. And now let us participate in Good